0: You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. For our call to worship this morning, we're going to be reading uh, a reading in the back of the green hymnal, number 580, called The Task of the Religious Community, written by Reverend Mark Morrison-Reed, one of our leaders of our Unitarian Universalist movement. And we'll just be reading the whole thing together. 580 at the back of the hymnal. So go to the back of the hymnal, very back. We don't do this very often. Go to the very back of the hymnal, and you'll see a whole bunch of readings, and they're numbered. And then go to number 580. 580. How, how are people feeling? Whoo good. Yes, indeed. Shall we read it together, because it's a good one? (laughs) Here we go. The central task of the religious community is to unveil the bonds that bind each to all. There is a connectedness, a relationship discovered amid the particulars of our own lives and the lives of others, once felt it inspires us to act for justice. It is the church that assures us that we are not struggling for justice on our own, but as members of a larger community. The religious community is essential, for alone our vision is too narrow to see all that must be seen, and our strength too limited to do all that must be done. Together, our vision widens and our strength is renewed. A few weeks ago, I had the great privilege of attending a workshop led by Resmaa Menachem and Robin D'Angelo. And many of you were there. And I was so grateful to see you there. I was so glad that so many of us We're coming with our longing and our curiosity, our wounds, and our willingness to change. I have been reading Resmaa Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands, bit by bit, kind of like a sacred text. Reading a verse or reading a, a little exercise and sitting with it for a while. Sitting with it for a couple of days and letting it sink in. It's a groundbreaking book on trauma and racism, and I couldn't pass up a chance to hear him speak a few weeks ago, and I couldn't pass up a chance to talk to you about this book and about Menachem's, uh, his mm, theories around racism and trauma, and to also talk about some of my own discoveries In my grandmother's hands, Menachem makes a stunning paradigm shift in the work of anti-racism and dismantling white supremacy. He starts with a central, provocative question. Why, after three decades, of concerted efforts to address racism and white body supremacy with reason, with principles, with values, with forums, with dialogue, why after all this are black and brown bodies still dying? Why are 12 and 14-year-old black bodies slammed to the ground, handcuffed, and terrorized in Minnehaha Park by park police when it is they who are being harassed by white kids? Why can a heavily armed white man creating mayhem be led away in handcuffs and a black man sitting on a curb in North Minneapolis ends up dead? Is it because we're not trying hard enough? Is it because we are insincere? Menachem's answer is clear. We have focused our efforts in the wrong direction. I quote, white body supremacy doesn't live in our thinking brains. It lives in our bodies. It lives in our inexplicable reactions to seemingly small things or or a holding or a constriction in our hearts. The body is where we live, Menachem says. It's where we fear, hope, and react. And what the body cares most about is safety and survival. When something happens to the body that is too much, too fast, or too soon, it overwhelms the system and can create trauma. So trauma is not the event or the situation, per se, but a physical response by our body to protect itself from harm. As Menachem writes, trauma is a wordless story our body tells itself about what is safe and what is a threat. When that wordless story gets told over and over again or is triggered again and again by circumstances, trauma gets embedded in our bodies and our, and our beings. Trauma can look like an freaking out on, of something, around something that is pretty small. It can look like a constant sense of worry that something terrible is going to happen. In some cases, it can look like recreating a similar situation to the event that caused the trauma in the first place in order to create a different ending, but often just re-traumatizes and deepens the trauma response. Sometimes a traumatic-inducing event is forgotten, and all that is left is the response, and we pass on that trauma unknowingly through family patterns and through generations. Menachem's central theme is that racism and white supremacist culture is the air we breathe, the trauma-inducing framework that consistently overwhelms our bodies with too much too soon and too fast and traumatizes our beings over and over again we need more than talking or reason we need to meet trauma on its home court and that is the body i use the word our bodies, because this is the other surprising move Menachem makes in his book. He pulls no punches as he describes the trauma this country has meted out on black and brown bodies. But he makes the argument that white people need to explore their own historical trauma, trauma that they carry in their bodies from the countries of origin, from their countries of origin, experienced through white-on-white violence, torture, mutilation, starvation, and death during the Middle Ages and forward. This is what white bodies carried to the new world 400 plus years ago. The trauma of powerful white bodies inflicting violence on less powerful white bodies. Menachem argues that this collective trauma stored in the body of white people evolved into an emerging framework of white supremacy whereby white Americans tried to soothe the dissonance between the powerful and the less powerful. And in his words, blew centuries of white-on-white violence through millions of brown, black, and indigenous Bodies. He writes, the phantasm of race was conjured to help white people manage their fear and hatred of other white people. Hmm. Sit with that for a moment. Sit with the idea that race is a construction. Sit with the idea that or ask yourself, when were your ancestors first declared white or black or brown? When did that happen? How is your body responding to these questions? Is there a tightening anywhere? where do you sense the recognition? Do these questions seem insightful or kind of stupid? Do you want to laugh? Do you want to cuss? you want to cry, run away? Just sense how you're responding. These are the types of things Menachem asks us to do, to sit with our beings, with our bodies, as we take on the work of racial justice. He asks over and over again for us to tune in and sense our bodies, our responses. I sat with this concept of conjuring of race as a means to help white people manage their fear and hatred of other white people for a long time this winter. I wondered, where did I come from? What are the wordless stories, the trauma that is carried in my white body? Not just family trauma, but historical and generational trauma. What was I? before I was white? What are my trauma responses, lived or historical, that keep me quiet when I need to speak up, that make me rock around instead of going directly forward? What are the ways that I can work with my own trauma to be a more grounded and helpful present, direct and loving in the work for racial justice? Although it's hard to trace some of my history, there is a river of ancestry that I know pretty well. And this summer, I had been planning to visit Finland to reconnect with many of my artist friends, musician friends there that I've worked with over the course of decades. And I found myself adding another stop to the trip to make a pilgrimage to Denmark the homeland of some of my people and to deepen my racial justice work. I'm aware of the great privilege afforded me as a white woman and a person with a decent income which allows me to travel. And I'm not sure how to reconcile this privilege other than to be very thoughtful about why and how I travel. I didn't go to Denmark to learn about Danish cuisine. I didn't go to connect with distant relatives. I went there to ask, why did my people leave one place and head for another with four small children in tow? What cultural shifts were taking place at that time that would bring about such a journey? What wordless stories did they carry in their bodies and pass down to my grandfather and my mother and to me? And how does my ancestral history of trauma connect with the white supremacist framework? Some of what I found was informative, some of it was a matter of connecting some historical dots and using my imagination, and some of it was tracing a direct connection from my people from the old country to the atrocities committed against indigenous people in this country. Some of my journey was... Discovering a surprising symbol that I will hold on to for a very long time. My pilgrimage took me, my sister, and spouse to the village of Ostrop Falsta, a very, very small village on one of the southern islands of Denmark. Ostrop is made up of a few thatched roofed longhouses and fields upon fields of wheat, sugar. Uh, I mean, sugar beets and barley stretching as far as the eye can see. And a huge pink church. Yes, I said pink. A huge pink church sitting out in the middle of nowhere, and it is proudly pink. The church was built in the 1100s, and it's where my great-grandparents great were married and baptized their first five children of 10 children, and where they buried their fifth child before heading to Nebraska. We were walking around the graveyard trying to find names like Johansson or Jakobson or Nils, and we were stunned, absolutely stunned, by the beauty and the care of the burial grounds. Nearly every headstone, no matter its age, had a little patch of garden space before it, and it was planted with impatience or buttercups. And there were large water troughs uh, every scattered about with watering cans in order for people to care for the grave sites. Hedgerows separated rows and rows of the departed, and small trees had been manicured to provide shade and comfort for the dead and the living. My people know and care for their ancestors. There is connection between those who have come before and that connection is tended. That was clear. A large man uh, stood beside a tractor in the little gravel parking lot as we pulled up and as we were walking around the man suddenly went to the doorway and motioned us to come in. His big red belly was sticking out from his shirt that was unbuttoned. And he just smiled and proudly motioned us to come in. And we were just stunned again by what we saw. The walls of that sanctuary were covered entirely with frescoes. It was a stark white background with Primitive and intricate illustrations of the creation story, of the parables, the passion story of Christ's torture and death, rendered in rust color and yellows and soft greens. Threads of Christ's blood entered the mouths of praying men and the soup of women. There were horses with wings and devilish little creatures looking all around. And in the middle of the sanctuary was this beautiful, beautiful 16th-century ship hanging from the ceiling with all the riggings, and it was hung above red lacquered pews. The church had been refurbished in the early 2000s, and the groundskeeper... groundskeeper told us in his piece together Danish and English, which I so appreciated, that he had helped in the repairs by repainting these pews, and he was standing so proudly that this was his handiwork, and that the artisans who had worked with them had built a second floor in order for them to restore all these frescoes to their original vibrancy. These pictures and illustrations were part of the Catholic tradition in the medieval times to communicate Bible stories to the non-reading faithful. And I look at these frescoes today and think they are beautiful and whimsical, but I wondered what it would have been like to look at these pictures every Sunday. Every Sunday, hour on end with torture and human depravity staring back at me, while ghouls and strange animal creatures lurked behind each column. One of the greatest blessings and curses of the Reformation and Martin Luther's protest movement against the Catholic Church was the reframing of the gospel, The good news of Lutheranism was that the only source of our church traditions was to be found in the Bible and solely the Bible. This meant that many of the corrupt practices of the Catholic Church were called into question. It also meant that the illustrations and artistry that we so love was considered idolatrous. So with the spread of Lutheranism in the 1600s throughout Europe, including Denmark, all the frescoes and paintings of the Danish churches were plastered over with whitewash, and the feel and look of worship was completely altered. Now just think about that. What if the U.S. government came in here and said, Buddhism is now the state religion, and we are going to pull out all these pews in order to make room for sappho pillows. Think what that might feel like. People experienced a literal wiping out of one tradition in lieu of another, whitewashed away. I wonder what that felt like as I stood there. I wondered how people experienced this act in their holiest of places. Did it feel like relief? Or did it feel like a violation, where their, where their traumatic response was housed in the body of that place and in their own beings? Most certainly, it was not a choice. All forms of torture and mutilations were used by powerful white people to keep less powerful white people in line during that time. Whipping posts and torture squares were in most every market square we walked through. The Protestants burned, whipped, and mutilated people just as handily as any Catholic. So, as I talked with the groundspeople and various folks, I put together that 10% of the Danish population left the country in the late 1800s. My people were some of them. At that time, many people were dying of starvation. Almost a quarter of Denmark's landmass had been lost to Germany, and the population of Denmark had grown rapidly. So only one child could inherit land, usually the eldest son, so that meant a lot of people were without any means to feed themselves. My people were not very different from the immigrants and refugees of today. They were leaving to survive. My great-grandparents headed for Nebraska, where my great-grandmother's aunt had settled and agreed to sponsor them. The Danes, it is often written, assimilated most quickly into the American way of life out of all the Nordic ethnicities. When I read this in the history books or in the museums, I read, my people became white as quickly as they could. I couldn't help but think of those whitewashed sanctuary walls, a trauma response of safety and survival to drop whatever you are and become something else. My great-grandparents took advantage of the Homestead Act of 1862, instituted by our much-beloved President Lincoln. This act was designed to make land available for free to those who lived on and cultivated a tract for a period of time. At the same time, the US government under Lincoln nullified treaties with Native peoples, right and left, and our great unifier of a president created and supported policies that systematically and intentionally killed Native leaders and led to the ethnic cleansing of Native people in the Midwest and Western states to encourage white settlements. My family's trauma fit beautifully within the well-established white supremacist framework, whereby the very violence and oppression that was visited on them by more powerful white people, my family visited on brown people, the Dakota and the Omaha. There is a story I heard in my childhood from an old family family friend who lived in Nebraska at the same time my great-grandparents settled there. She told me that it was not an infrequent experience to have the door of her family's sod house thrown open and emaciated, starving people indigenous to that area beg or demand food. I have to believe that this happened to my ancestors as well. And it breaks my heart to think about it. I doubt very seriously that they would invite those people into their homes, given the awful stories about natives that were circulating at that time. These are some of the stories I'm holding right now. This is a history that is my present. The trauma of whitewashing traditions away, of starvation, of leaving home, of encountering the other, of meting out violence in the same way it was meted out to you. Menachem says it straight on. For America to outgrow the bondage of white body supremacy, white Americans need to imagine themselves in black bodies and experience what those bodies had to endure. They also need to do the same with the bodies of their own white ancestors. And they need to ask themselves this question. If we don't address our ancient historical trauma, what will we pass down to our children? and to their children, and their grandchildren. There is one final image that I'm holding on to right now, an image that inspires and gives me hope, even when despair for myself and this world wakes me up at night. It has to do with that ship, that ship that hangs from the ceiling of every Danish church. The ship is meant to symbolize this unarguable fact. We are all in the boat together. The Danes hang a ship not above the chancel or the pulpit, but over the body of the congregation to remind us all that we are sitting side by side in the boat together. We are meant to put our oars in the water and pull together. The storms may be mighty, the waves rough and frighteningly high, but we are meant to navigate this life together. The ship has one other message to relate, and it is this. You are not steering the ship. (laughs) You are not at the helm. This ship is guided by God, by the mystery, by the spirit of life, by something larger than you and your efforts. It's our work as human beings to pull in rhythm with what is good and just and grace-filled in this world. This is our work. This is what we're meant to do together. I want to be on that boat for racial equity and justice. I want to pull with all my weight and do my work to love myself, have compassion for myself and others, into healing the wordless stories of trauma embedded in my body, and to sit and accompany others as they navigate their own wordless stories. Will you join me? I hope you will say yes. We may plant seeds in the ground, but we plant dreams in the sky, hoping that someday the roots of one will meet the upstretched limbs of the other. It's not happened yet. Still together, we nod unafraid of strangers, because inside us we know something about each other. We are all members of the secret tribe of eyes, looking upward, even as we stand on uncertain ground or rock in a boat on precarious seas. Up there, the dream is indifferent to time, impervious to borders, to fences, to reservations. The sky is our greater home. It is the place and the feeling we have in common. And this boat we're in is the only one we've got. Travelers, look up and then row. May it be so, and amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T, univ 273256 to make your gift if you are able to join us in person for sunday worship we'd love to see you in church to learn more visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org